It's Friday, January 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The votes failed to reopen the government. The Senate voted on two proposals, one backed by Republicans and one backed by Democrats, but neither gained enough support. There are hopes, however, that now that we know what won't pass to reopen the government, the two sides can come to a consensus on what will pass. Shannon Vavra, reporter for Axios, joins us for another failed bid to stop the longest government shutdown in history. Next, as we continue to wallow in endless robocalls and spam calls, the nation's four major wireless companies are trying to give you a heads up when a bad call is coming through. For T-Mobile users, suspicious calls now show up on your caller ID labeled as scam likely. Dalvin Brown, consumer tech reporter for USA Today, joins us for the continued fight to save you from robocalls. Finally, a pair of documentaries about the failed Fire Festival have been released on Hulu and Netflix. It was billed as a luxury music experience on Pablo Escobar's former island, complete with beautiful Instagram models. But it was all a fraud. Kate Talbot, contributor to Forbes, joins us for what the Fire Festival documentaries reveal about millennials and social media influencers. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. One of the ideas suggested is they open it, they pay a sort of a, a prorated down payment. I'll tell you who wants this to happen. The military wants this to happen because this is a virtual invasion of our country, of drugs, of human traffickers. It's an invasion of our country. Joining us now is Shannon Vavra, reporter for Axios. The government shutdown continues. It's in its 35th day now. One quick thing that happened was the issue of the State of the Union address. The president and Nancy Pelosi were going back and forth, fighting about postponing it. Nancy Pelosi sent Trump a, a letter saying, we got to postpone this thing because the shutdown. There was back and forth. The president finally conceded and said, all right, I'll wait until the government reopens for us to do this in the right place. What's interesting about that is we're starting to see Trump's wall that he's put up here and his insistence on the border wall. We're starting to see it crumble a little bit just in that one moment with him saying, oh, yes, Nancy Pelosi does have that prerogative. And we're really seeing how far Pelosi is getting into his head, too, right? He's tweeting. He says, Nancy Pelosi, I call her Nancy, yeah. which isn't even a nickname, right? And so, <laughs> Yeah, I thought the exact same thing when that happened. It's it just comical to laugh at. And, and, but you're right, though. It shows how much power Nancy Pelosi has in this fight, how much power the Democrats in the House have now that they've taken control there. And the president is realizing as this the shutdown continues to go on that there are consequences and that he does need to make a deal. So he did concede there. Talking about the State of the Union and whether President Trump will be able to deliver it in the House chamber and, and who's going to introduce that resolution to authorize that, right? It's all posturing. It's, it's the same reason why we know, as actually was reported, Mitch McConnell and President Trump are talking about that negotiated deal that they presented on the Senate floor today for votes. We know that they were hoping to do that to sweeten the deal for Democrats and to try and make it look like in future election years, the Republicans would be able to say, well, the Democrats actually voted against extending DACA protections. They voted against renewing the Violence Against Women Act. And so it's all this posturing around this one idea of a $5.7 billion border wall. Let's talk about the two bills that the Senate voted on to try to reopen the government. One was sponsored by Democrats. One was sponsored by Republicans. On the Republican side, it had the funding for the border wall. That one didn't pass. The Democrat side had a clean funding bill, wasn't going to give money for the wall, but did expand some other border security protections that also didn't pass. Right. And what we're seeing from the specific vote counts there is actually really interesting to pull apart. So the Democratic plan had actually more yays and yes votes 
than the Trump and Mitch McConnell plan. And it also had more GOP defection. So it overall had more support. And that's an indication that President Trump and the White House are likely looking at now moving forward in terms of what kinds of proposals they can put forward if negotiations are seriously back on the table. And then on the flip side, we also see that with the six Republicans, we had Gardner, Murkowski, Collins, Romney, Alexander, and Isaacson all broke party line to vote for the Democrats. And we interestingly had Joe Manchin, who the Democrat, vote for the Trump proposal. It's interesting how this is all playing out so publicly. Everybody's reporting on it furiously because just how long the shutdown has extended because of all of this. But a lot of people are very hopeful that even though the bills did not pass, at least everybody's on record now. They've all voted, so they know where everybody stands And it could be the beginning of concessions from both sides on working on on how to figure it out, where we can meet in the middle. Right, but that's exactly the thing is both Nancy Pelosi had a press conference and after the votes took place and she seems firm as ever. And then President Trump also spoke with reporters after the votes took place. And he's saying things like, oh, there are other alternatives we can turn to. We know he's talking now about accepting a continuing resolution if it has some sort of a down payment on the wall, which would indicate that there would be future down payments, right? And and the question is, if there is a continuing resolution to reopen the government, what happens then after that temporary opening? Do we have another shutdown if there's no border wall funding? And there's just so many questions about whether President Trump will maintain his stance here that it's, it's I'm almost anybody's best guess what happens in the next 24 hours. Going back to the politics of it, you know, the president made this such a central part of his campaign. We're going to build a wall and Mexico is going to pay for it. And he's kind of pinned himself against the wall with this, ironically, right? (laughs) It's obvious that Mexico is not going to pay for this. I know they say that's going to happen in some form with the new trade agreement that we have going, but that's not really borne out just yet. So he needs to get this done. He needs to have this go through for him to have any prospects of uh, appeasing his base. whether his base actually supports this, we know that his approval rating is starting to tank a little bit more than usual, in particular because Republicans aren't necessarily backing him in his fight for the wall anymore. They used to be impenetrable in their support for President Trump. This is one of the things that's actually started peeling some of his support away from him. So he's probably going to start feeling the burn of that in addition to the harm that federal workers are experiencing right now as a result of not having liquidity. Not to mention the fact that we've had Kevin Hassett from the White House concede that if the shutdown continues through quarter one, there will be zero growth. And we know that President Trump likes to tout economic stats. So that's something that President Trump is likely thinking about as well. Shannon Vavra, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The amount of time between you dialing a phone number and the time it takes for someone to pick up or before someone's phone starts ringing, those are the fractions of a second is the amount of time that the phone companies have to determine whether that call is a fake or whether it is a person that you would actually like to talk to. Joining us now is Dalvin Brown, consumer tech reporter for USA Today. We're going to be talking about one of the worst things ever, and that is robocalls and spam calls. It's just been so horrible to deal with these things. I get calls all the time. I just got one right before we did this interview. There's a call blocking service called Umail that reported that 4.7 billion robocalls called our phones in December of this past year alone. It's an average of 14.3 unsolicited calls for each person. It's so crazy, the numbers behind robocalls and these spam calls. But there's a lot of things that wireless carriers are doing to help with that. One that's uh, gaining a lot of traction is uh, sometimes you'll get, uh, you know, the call will come in. It'll actually say scam likely, giving you the heads up. So be wary if you want to answer this or not. So what are these 
phone company is doing to help out with this big problem? The most important thing for people to know is that although you yourself may not be able to prevent 100% of these robocalls, the chances are your mobile provider is doing something to prevent them. So I am a T-Mobile customer and I receive the scam likely notifications whenever there is a scammy robocall trying to reach me. I just don't pick up because I learned from personal experience. If it says scam likely, it's probably a scam. So that's really helpful with T-Mobile. And then other major service providers are offering perhaps not as built in. So T-Mobile has it built in. You don't have to download anything. As long as you're a T-Mobile customer, you'll get the alert. But some of the other companies like AT&T require you to actually download an app to block some of these robocalls. There is a free service and then there's also an advanced service called AT&T Call Protect Plus that really enables you to do a little bit more to prevent these calls from reaching you. Same thing with T-Mobile. They require that you also download an app called Premium Caller ID. That one's $2.99 a month. It's not free, but the good thing about T-Mobile, oh, both T-Mobile and AT&T is they're both working on implementing blockers on the back end so that in the future, perhaps you won't have to download an app to prevent robocalls from reaching you. And then lastly, Verizon. Verizon has a really interesting system. So they have a call filter app that grades the level of protection, if you will. If, if you download the app, you'll get a graph will pop up on your screen when you're receiving a call. And so if it's a potential fraud, then the graph might lean in one direction. If it's 100% okay and they think that it's not a fraud call, it will lean in the other direction. That's so, pretty interesting because yeah. it's kind of giving you, it's still helping you play the odds, basically. It's like, well, this looks like it, so the graph is going to lean more this way. While some of these apps that you do have to buy $2.99, $3.99 a month or something like that, it does give you a little more peace of mind to know that they're trying to help out and that you have that option to not really answer that stuff. And some of these programs have been really successful. The ones for T-Mobile, they say that they flagged over 90% of scam calls from this past November, equating to over 1 billion unwanted calls. I mean, the numbers really stick out to me as how astronomically high <laughs> the number of unwanted calls all these things go through. You guys were talking to somebody from AT&T. They sent you guys a statement saying it's a whole toolbox that it takes to fight all this stuff because you have to block the numbers, label the numbers, educate the customers on this. The industry has to get involved. The enforcement, the whole caller ID authentication stuff goes into it. So it's a big doing just to help block these calls. I guess what's really interesting too is that while they're blocking millions of calls, we all still continue to receive dozens of them, it seems like, a week. <laughs> right. And like you said, it's because it's a really complicated issue to solve. If you think about how quickly the amount of time between you dialing a phone number and the time it takes for someone to pick up or before someone's phone starts ringing, those are the fractions of a second is the amount of time that the phone companies have to determine whether that call is a fake or whether it is a person that you would actually like to talk to. And so during that time, there's so many different things. You know, the numbers run, it's run up against a registry of blocked calls location and time of the call also is taken into consideration to determine whether it's a call that you may want to receive or whether it's a likely scam. And so all these things that are happening on the back end do allow some fake calls to come through, which are the ones that you would have gotten right before this interview or the ones that I've gotten over the past week. But again, the good thing is they are working 
you know, this is relatively new technology, and as the technology continues to advance, then hopefully we'll see fewer and fewer robocalls reaching us. You know, what's funny is that I didn't think we would be able to squeeze the government shutdown into this interview, but somehow it did creep into it because part of the efforts to avoid these calls is the do not call registry that the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, runs. And since the government is shut down right now, you can't report these numbers to them right now during this time. The websites are completely shut down. If you try to go to the government site to report a number, and then that sort of compounds the problem, right? Because, okay, I got this call that I don't want. There's normally a registry where I can go submit this to, and hopefully the government will do something about it. But right now, that's not really the case. No luck. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much, Dalvin Brown, consumer tech reporter for USA Today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Really understood what millennials as a generation want. What Fire Festival did prove is that power of influence is real. These guys figured out a way to optimize social media, almost weaponize it. That's really when it turned to something that became like a significant financial crime. Joining us now is Kate Talbot, contributor to Forbes. This is my favorite story of the week, so thank you for being here. It is that of the Fire Festival and the two documentaries that came out, one on Hulu and one on Netflix. I really think they're kind of companion pieces. They overlap on a lot of similar themes, but you really get a complete picture of how much a disaster this thing was. It's all about the founder of Fire, Billy McFarlane, his partner, rapper Ja Rule, and this big luxury music experience they were trying to create on Pablo Escobar's former island in the Bahamas. From the get-go, it's like, We're going to do this in six months and established concerts like Coachella, things like that. I mean, they're working on these things year round and they wanted to create this from nothing. And we all know what happened. We saw it play out in the media, the disaster. So let's start with their uh, first impressions of the two documentaries. uh, Anything that stands out to you? Same impression, just the amount of craziness that went into either executing it or lack of execution. And then what happened when the actual concert goers were there and how much mayhem was happening. The Lord of the Flies especially on the Netflix documentary when they were just grabbing mattresses and (laughs) there was all for themselves and some jerks were just peeing on the mattresses themselves. So that to me... (laughs) I don't know what that accomplishes right there at all. (laughs) One of the things that struck me was just how complicit a lot of the people that were helping organize this thing, they saw it crashing from the beginning and they paint the picture in both documentaries that they were putting out little fires as they'd go and, uh, you know, solving one problem and moving on to the next. And Everybody kind of just said, you know, Billy had this confidence that things would get done and everybody just kind of kept going with it until it was the last possible second. And then they realized, oh, crap, we're screwed on this whole thing. Totally. And I think it just goes to the fact of how confident and how much that people really engaged with Billy and kept going with him. And even after he got arrested and all this stuff went on, he still got people to work with him on that VIP ticketing thing. So he must have some kind of charm that people just listen to him, want to work with him and invest in him. So that's what happened. And it's kind of a crazy story that keeps on going. There was a lot of schadenfreude that played out because people were watching this here in the States and realizing, oh man, all these rich millennials pouring so much money, ha ha ha. 
they're going through hell over there. But one of the things that really gets lost in there and to Netflix's credit, they made it a, a central part of it was a lot of those workers there in the Bahamas never got paid. A lot of those vendors got stiff. And the poor woman, Marianne Roll, who was the owner of one of the food places out there, she had to end up paying over $50,000 of her own savings to the workers that were working with her that never got paid. Now they made a GoFundMe. I think there's $185,000 in there that's going to go towards her, which is great. But at the time, I mean, they put her out really badly through all that. That was kind of the silver lining of these documentaries is that we as viewers got to see a lot more storytelling from all different angles, not just what we saw on Twitter during that weekend. And it was really like the one uplifting story is that so many people did contribute to the GoFundMe. And when you go on the GoFundMe, you know, there's people sending $5, $10, know, really anything that they can just because they put so much heart and soul, all those workers in the Bahamas, and they got totally screwed. And I think that at least now we as viewers, like can help out and do that. And it's great to see that she, you know, has her savings back. But again, if it weren't for these documentaries, we wouldn't even have known about them. For wire fraud, mail fraud, falsified investment documents and all that stuff. Billy McFarland ended up getting six years in federal prison. He's currently serving now. The article you wrote for Forbes took a broader picture about what these documentaries really reveal about millennials. And I thought it was a great take on there, starting off with the Instagram influencer campaign, which was really central to this. There was 400 in-demand influencers who put stuff up on their Instagrams, and that's all it took to create the entire buzz for everybody to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to want to be here. It's incredible. And I think it really speaks to how we are as a society right now. You know, everybody's just scrolling through their Instagram. And the way that they did it, too, is that they had these orange tiles and all these Instagram influencers, you know, with millions of followers just had this tile. So here we are just wherever we are in America, just seeing a tile and wanting to be part of this video. And they created this whole campaign off of an illusion from, you know, a 10 minute video of influencers running on the beach, there's pigs, there's all this stuff that's happening and everybody wants to be part of it. And I thought that was so central to who we are, and especially millennial generation of just really consuming this Instagram content and wanting to be part of that concert going experience. Yeah, these influencer campaigns are so important. There's not a major media company now that doesn't have some type of influencer campaign. It just shows how important that is. The other thing that the that they did uh, was, you know, these em emphasis on exclusive experiences, really playing up that FOMO, uh, the fear of missing out. Like you need to be here so you can have the best Instagram pictures that your friends are never going to have. This Instagram culture has really created this experiences that have to be exclusive that you have to go to to get that perfect shot. I think, you know, when everybody goes to Coachella, everybody goes in front of that big Ferris wheel and that's the shot that people get. And on that point too, the content, the capturing of video, constant content, this was like part of the downfall of Billy McFarlane and the Fire Festival because they uh, documented everything from the beginning all the way to the end and after even his next fraudulent scheme that he started doing was caught on video. But that's how we got to see what happened there. You know, content from people that were there, the content that he was recording himself. And I mean, it's just shows that everybody's doing this. This is what the next level of media is, is the constant plugged in. You could remember that weekend of Fire Festival on Twitter. It was trending all the time. You know, the cheese sandwich, I think, is a quintessential oh, that's photo. It, for sure. I think it was in the Netflix version where they said you had all these influencers with millions and millions of followers and it generated this buzz. But in the end, it just took this one kid with a few thousand, I don't know how many followers he had to bring the whole thing down. And it was that cheese sandwich was the picture that did it. Kate Talbot, contributor to Forbes. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you.
That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>